out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it is going to be the turn of the performers, uh, performer and artist Pam Tent, one-time member of the Coquettes, who were based in San Francisco in the very early 70s. And a few years ago, she brought out a book titled Midnight at the Palace, My Life as a Fabulous Coquette. And um, yes, this is the interview uh, that I managed to try get with her a few weeks ago to find out more about life, love, poetry, all that other groovy stuff. Anyway, after many minutes of casual chat with Pam, we got down to that very exciting subject that were the early formative years. Pam, tell us your life story. Yeah, I, uh, I grew up in, um, well, I don't know if you need to know all that. I grew up in the Midwest in Michigan and... Um, I went to an all-girls Catholic high school, and we started taking LSD in 1966. It was still legal, yeah. and it was sold under the pharmaceutical name of Sandoz. Now, am I free to talk about drugs? On yeah, the, yes, on absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and so anyway, so I was uh, with the nuns and everything, and we were taking LSD, and um playing hooky and, and going to see the bands MC five at the, and you know, that sort of thing. Um, and uh, I got interested in what was going on and, and in the news in those days in the 66 and early 67, all we could see were um, life magazine, look magazine were were articles on what was happening in San Francisco. And uh it was terribly exciting. I mean, it just, you know, it, it drew everybody like a magnet. In fact, most of the colleges just practically emptied out. You know, I, uh, after high school, I, I started uh, university, but I took a whole bunch of LSD that I was going to give to all my friends at school. And I took it myself Excellent. and decided to quit school and go to San Francisco. <laughs> And I got a ride. In those days, they had, I guess they still have these drive-away cars where uh, a company will want you to drive uh, a car for them. Someone wants to buy it in Los Angeles, and so they'll have you drive it from uh, Minneapolis or New York or whatever across the country. And you basically drive for free. You pay for gas. So I went with um, David the Mad Bomber, who was wanted for bombing induction centers in Michigan. And baby Bobby, who later became Bobby Miller, the photographer, the Studio 54 photographer. So we drove out to San Francisco. This was the, um, the winter of 67, 68, this New Year's. And um, I arrived on 8th Street with $8 in my pocket and uh, a little suitcase. And I was stoned. <laughs> Oh, wow. So because because it was kind of interesting because 67 was was kind of referred to now as the summer of love, because in in January time you had the they had the uh, gathering of the tribes, didn't they, in Golden Gate Park. And then a few months later in July, I think it was, they had the 14 hour Technicolor dream in sort of the Alley Pally in London. So 60, 67 was definitely a sort of a high point of the hippie counterculture, wasn't it? Well, it was, and I was just graduating. I graduated in June of 1967. 
And so I moved my first apartment. I was still uh, 17. I wasn't 18 yet, but my parents let me move into an apartment. And that's when, unfortunately enough, the Detroit riots broke out where 49 people were killed. So it seems to me like uh, yes. going through this is just unbelievable. But, uh, but uh, uh, yeah, so... Um, um, so did you I feel was, that did you feel there was quite a community when you landed in San Francisco? Did it feel quite safe and that um, you know there was a certain naive optimism and innocence in the air? Exactly. I was taken in. I was walking around and I went into the Cinema Antique Coffee House, which showed uh, psychedelic uh, pictures on the walls, and I sat in there. I don't know how long. It seemed like hours, but probably not. And someone invited me to the straight theater and the straight theater uh, was not straight at all. It was absolutely in uh, Gary Grimshaw. They had artwork all over the walls and it was where all the bands, Quicksilver Messenger Service, the Ace of Cups, um, all the bands in those days were playing um, on Hate Street. And they had, he showed me a room underneath the stage and it was all filled with huge satin pillows and they had a hookah. I guess they call it something else now, a bong or something. Yes. But, <laughs> but it was it was just amazing. And people used to party under there. But anyway, people took me in. In those days, you could sit on the street on your suitcase and people would basically uh, just invite you home. You know, and this happened to me a number of times because I would go back and forth between uh, Boulder, Colorado and New York and San Francisco for a couple of years. And uh, that's how I met Hibiscus and the other Cockettes, or who became Cockettes. So what was Hi Hibiscus like? Because he sounds like quite the character. Was he quite an enigmatic character that sort of- Of instantly... course, he was completely androgynous. He was absolutely wonderful. He, like me, had um, show business or, well, see, mine were much um, on a smaller scale than his. When I was a kid, I used to organize all the children in the neighborhood because I had taken tap and ballet and that we used to have circuses in the backyard and my mother would make curtains in front of the garage with old General Motors um, trade show curtains and she'd sew them together, you know, yeah. and we used to put out bleachers and we'd have shows. So when I met Hibiscus, I was uh, asleep in Golden Gate Park in Prehistoric Pond and I heard some people singing show tunes. They were singing, we're having a heat wave that Marilyn Monroe song from yes. No Business Like Show Business. And there were these three androgynous men up in a tree singing 40 show tunes. And they invited me up with them. And Hibiscus was one of them. And he was always barefoot. And he was wearing some kind of a, um, a caftan with lipstick. And he had this wild mane of hair. And uh, I just joined right in it it fit in right with the things that I love to do, which was entertain and sing and, you know, that. Yes. And he invited me back to the cauliflower commune where he was living at that time. And in fact, all of San Francisco, uh, people had set up a system outside of the straight system. We had our own barter. No one used money. We had communes that uh, we had the food conspiracy that, I bought food in bulk and distributed it. We had the, the community that fixed cars. We had, uh, you know, the babysitting community commune. 
Um, we took care of ourselves. We had yoga making places. We had people that put out a newspaper. It was an entire insulated community. It was a, a small utopia. Yes. It was wonderful. And how long did that last? Because, you know, I've been in various scenes where you have that sort of a honeymoon period and then things slightly unravel. Did you get a, looking back, did, do you get a sense of like, oh yes, there was that period which was just, everybody was kind of working for each other. There was no one just taking, there was no kind of edge. There was no one who was, you know, had some really dark kind of agenda to sort of well, inflict first... on people. The first little uh, bit of it that I saw was in um, February. It was just a, well, it was a terrible hint of omen of what, what was to come. Um, in 19, in 19, February of 1968, see every weekend for the past few weekends in a row, they were closing down Hate Street and letting the Grateful Dead play in the street for free. And so thousands of people came. I mean, it was I can't even tell you the camaraderie and the excitement. I mean, we all discovered each other. It was, it was absolutely wonderful. And the third Sunday, the organizers didn't get a permit, but they just put on the show as usual. And the police uh, who were getting really uh, a little upset, things were happening. Um, people had moved into Golden Gate Park, which was adjacent to the hate. And they had set up their furniture. They, I mean, really, they were rocking chairs and beds. And people had really moved into the park, which is quite large. Yeah. And uh, in fact, they had rats in the park because people were cooking. And and the merchants on Hate Street were starting to feel the pinch because there were people always sitting out in front of their establishments, panhandling, and they was they were starting to get a little bit worn out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so the police came in and started to arrest people because there was no permit for this shutdown. And, um, you know, people were sitting very stoned in the middle of the street with chalk drawing trees and on the asphalt. And, you know, it was just like, they used to call them love-ins, you yes. know, years ago. But uh, it was like that and the police came and it was so vicious and it was so quick. and they. Um, they were started to beat people because people didn't get out of the way fast enough. They were too stoned or they just ignored the police, you know? And so they drove them into the straight theater and then they tear gassed it. And then as people ran out, they were hitting them with their clubs. So, mm. yeah. And so the Tate Ashbury free medical clinic, Dr. David Smith saw what was going on and he came running out to the street he saw the police beating one of the hippies and he tried to stop it. And they said, doctor, you better get into your, your uh, offices because you're going to get this too. Um, so it was a very cruel crackdown. And that was the beginning of, uh, I mean, the hate went on for probably two more years before it, it became what I would say slightly more dangerous drug mm. dealers I mean, there were always drug dealers, but it was like psychedelic drug dealers, you know. Um, you would walk by on the street and people would just walk past you and say, um, grass, acid, speed, you know, and they just keep walking. <laughs> You'd stop them, you know, if you wanted something. Yeah. Uh, a lid of grass in those days, which was an ounce, was only $10. 
10 American dollars. So did you ever get the did, you, did the vibe of Charles Manson, you know, ever sort of start to sort of creep into your life? Or did you sort of completely miss that one? No, it just didn't really pay. It didn't really creep up to San Francisco. It was more of an L.A. thing, you know. Yes. So um, when did. Yeah, sorry. But we hitchhiked. We, we, we were completely uncognizant of the fact that there was so much danger around us. This is the years of Ted Bundy, you know, the serial killers, the trail side killer. We hitchhiked. I hitchhiked alone. Everyone did all over the country. We were just oblivious to all of this uh, danger around us. I know, you know, it's amazing, isn't it? So when did the coquettes form and and had, and where was the initial sort of moment that it started to, well, the name happened and then you thought, this is it, we are a company? Well, actually, uh, Hibiscus was delivering cauliflower, that, which was a newspaper that, his, that Irving Rosenthal's commune put out to the other communes. And um, he would dance from one place to the other and he had his toenails painted black and he was just a sight, you know, he's always had glitter on his face and, you know, he was just absolutely incredible. As they say, he came out of the closet wearing the closet, wearing the whole <laughs> closet. And uh, he uh, uh, had a group of people that he knew and um, I was among them and he I wasn't there opening night, though. He got together some people. I was back in Colorado, and they decided to um, go on stage at the Palace Theater during the uh, intermission. Sebastian, uh, who became the Coquette manager later, was uh, putting on uh, films like avant-garde movies. He had nocturnal dream shows playing at... Um, they called it a Chinese grindhouse. What was they showed Kung Fu, fic, Kung Fu flicks during the day. At 11.30, the place would go dark. So when he was approached about having this crowd in and showing these films, you know, he thought he'd keep the candy counter open, make some more money, and yeah, it sounded great. And people turned up. A lot of people turned up. The theater held 1,300 people. And then see, in these days, there was no gay, no straight. There weren't these labels. It yeah. was just them and us. It was the straights and the hit and freaks. There was no, there weren't all these subdivisions, you know? And so all the freaks turned up at the palace. I mean, this is before the gay parade. parade. This was before, there were only two gay bars, I think, in the entire city at this point. So this was... Um, the place to be was the Palace Theater. And so the Cockettes came there and the first night, all they did was do a can-can to a, to a uh, 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 jump jack flash. And um, everybody loved it. Some people pulled off their clothes. Some people from the audience ran on the stage. You know, it was a complete free-for-all. So they did it again. They cranked up the music and did it again. So then the next month they came by and, um, put on a little bit more of a show, but there were never any scripts for these shows. They were hibiscus and whoever wanted to join him on stage, you know? And, and as things continued, they got crazier and longer. And pretty soon the shows went from like five minutes to three hours or four hours, you know? And we didn't go on till midnight and we were always so stoned. And the audience was part of the show. There was no wall there. Yeah. The audience was part of the show. 
Wow. And did it, did, did, at the time, when you sort of look back on it, did you just literally, was it just complete liberation with a certain drug-fueled sort of enthusiasm that went with it, with kind of innocence as well? Because it was it obviously, because nothing had like, had, like this had happened before, well, you know, in, in recent history. So it must have felt like you were pioneers of something quite amazing. Well, we didn't think of ourselves as pioneers. We were just, we were, yes, infused, LSD infused. We were spearheading the psychedelic movement, but we didn't realize it at the time. We were just, um, we were entertaining the rest of our family in the audience, you know. It was like, uh, there was no division. We didn't, um, it was an incredible time. It's really hard to explain how, I hate to overuse these words magical or, yes. or utopian, but it was absolutely incredible. There was uh, there was nothing, and we parodied everything. There was no PC then. Everybody got <laughs> the Mickey taken out of them. Everybody, you know, and the crowd loved it. And we all got along, and and we thought we were changing the world. I mean, we really thought we would change the world. There would be a yes. revolution. So there was two things that were happening. You know, you obviously had on the East Coast, you know, Andy Warhol and the factory. Then you had sort of Woodstock sort of kind of in 69 as well. So were, were these things also sort of sort of filtering into your life and into, you know, the coquettes? Well, you know, you know, I was um, actually I didn't go to Woodstock because I was in Colorado at the time. And I knew um, David Johansson from the New York Dolls. Yes. Later became David and I were an item for a short time, and he came out to see me in Colorado. And at the same time as Woodstock was purported to be the Wild West show in Golden Gate Park, and so we came back out here, and the Wild West show there was a huge fight about porta potties and um, you know trampling the grass and who was going to pay for all of this. And anyway, so the Wild West show didn't happen. Um, but uh, I didn't get to Woodstock, so that didn't really have much to do with the Cockettes. That was, um, the Cockettes, really, you have to realize that Hibiscus came from a theater family. He lived in New York. He lived, they lived next door to La Mama, which was yeah. an experimental theater. And his mother, she was in the Honeymoon Killers. His father was in one of the Superman movies. His whole family came from theater, and, and his roots were in theater. And in fact, after he left the Cockettes, he went back to doing um, soaps and commercials and that not for a short time. But um, he had a theatrical background. So when he came out to San Francisco and took acid, he, George Harris was his name, George Harris III. He exploded. I mean, all he, that's where we got into the 30s show tunes. We recreated 30s musicals on stage at the palace. Excellent. With they wanted to call it gender bender. Nobody had ever come up with that term, you know, before we saw it in the newspaper. (laughs) We didn't know. We were just doing what we liked. And these are not men trying to pass as women. These were men that were just leaving their beards, but glittering them, weaving tassels, tassels into their beards. They were accentuating both their male and female sides of their personality. You know, no one was trying to... You drag in the sense of um, the old straight Finocchio's, um, Carol Channing, you know, stuff. 
Absolutely. So how was your relationship as, as the 70s, as we sort of went into the next decade, the 70s? And obviously things changed a bit because then you had the sort of deaths of, you know, like Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison. I mean, she used to come to our shows. She waved to me in the street. I mean, this is how popular things were. The socialites were coming down to see us. I mean, the fire department had to come and close down the theater. We had 1,300 seats and we had more than people than that. I mean, it got, it was rollicking. It was very, it was the place to go as the palace. But um, I, uh, uh, we all were, a lot of the cockettes were of various sexual persuasions. A lot were bisexual. Um, a lot of us were sleeping together. And uh, Scrumbly and I had a child and a wedding on Mount Tamalpais that was filmed by Annie Leibovitz, who oh, later nice. became a well-known photographer. So she took it through a fisheye lens. I've never taken a worse photograph in my life. And of course, it's in Rolling Stone magazine. I thought I was going to die. So anyway, we're doing these shows. And um, there were five women in the Cockettes. And it's probably, as Rumi says, what gave the Cockettes their magic. is Because it wasn't an all-drag show. It was, uh, we had straight people too. We had everything. This is why John Waters loved us. You know, yes. and we brought waters out to San Francisco. We paid for Divine to fly out after we had seen um, uh, Multiple Maniacs, which was, oh, Sebastian was showing Waters films at the palace. And yes. after we saw one of Waters films, we went, oh my God, we saw Mondo Trasho. You gotta bring them to San Francisco. And so Divine came out, we met Divine at the airport at this big, you know, event. Yes. So um, anyway, nobody uh, certainly, everybody uh, got along except there were a few a couple of Goldie Glitters was a real queeny queen you know and in fact if you'd seen the movie she says in the movie I think it should have been all guys you know <laughs> <laughs> but it, she was uh, and she used to get upset because Dusty would nurse her baby on stage during some of the numbers during you know, when we're all dance, dancing and singing, Dusty be there with her baby. And Goldie used to go absolutely nuts at this. So anyway, we finally drew the attention. Joanna Carson, um, Betty Spiegel from the catalogs, Truman Capote, Rex Reed, they'd all come after seeing Beverly Sills at a performance, came to the palace for the midnight show. And they loved it. They absolutely loved it. And Rex Reed, did a column that was uh, syndicated nationwide that kind of put us on the map. Uh, we, from that, we got a tour to New York to open at the Anderson Theater. And nobody in New York, producers especially, expected that we didn't really have an act. I mean, we were, we had a piece of butcher paper backstage where hibiscus would cross that out. No, I don't want to go there. I want to go here. And people would write, I'm not going after him. I'm going here. And there was, every, we hated directors. We wouldn't let ourselves be directed. This was complete anarchy. And yes. it's what made the shows funny. The sets would fall over. It was a little rascal quality to it. <laughs> you know, it was very cheeky and, you know, but it also had this, uh, anything could happen. And of course, we had Sylvester, who uh, later became a disco star, yes. you know, and he came and was singing, oh, my God, to hear Sylvester sing blues, 
just sends chills up your spine. So um, the audience would go crazy whenever Sylvester would come on. So it became this all happening. So we got this tr uh, trip to New York and they didn't expect, they expected to see a real show in New York. They're hearing, oh, the, the, they had Andy Warhol crowd and Jackie, you know, Curtis and, and Candy Darling. So they were expecting something like that, only bigger because we were hyped to death. In fact, we didn't even get to rehearse before the show in New York. They put us on a bus. Maury North from Vanity Fair was there. She had a little roster. They put us on a bus and they took us from one to Sylvia Miles party. They took us to one celebrity party after another. And this was night after night, like just hyping this, this thing up. And we had no, uh, there was no sound system. We had, to, there was no lighting. Nothing had been done in this place. And it was huge. It was like a cavern. And our sets looked like little postage stamps because this place was so big. So opening night, no one in the audience in the balcony could hear us. It was the biggest bomb in the history of off-off-Broadway. Oh I mean, the, the critics just went wild. Clyde Barnes says, I'm not even going to touch this. You know, and Rex Reed said, it was worse than Hiroshima. Truman would have died. <laughs> but we were just... Um, at this point, the show was starting to get um, more professional because we had half of the cockettes wanted to work with the script and do shows. And um, they actually thought they were stars going to New York in a musical, you know? Yeah, sure. So it was uh, a, quite a trip. And of course, the producers held us, wanted to hold the show over. And I was about to have a baby. I was eight months pregnant. I just wanted to come home and have my baby. So it was quite a trip. Yes. And did it, and after that, did it feel like things changed quite a bit? No, and not at first. No, we came back and decided we, we should have brought San Francisco with us to New York. We decided this is our home. We got to put on a new and better show. And we did. And we put on a series of shows that were scripted. And they had all our own uh, material, books and lyrics. And the critics loved it. And we were still getting all the interviews and all the accolades, accolades. But uh, there came a time and Divine was performing with us. Divine just knocked out the crowd, I can tell you. Divine yes. in a red lobster costume from Journey to the Center of Uranus singing, uh, <laughs> a crab on Uranus means you're loved. Oh my God, people went nuts. <laughs> it was really funny. So it, there came a point, well, pristine condition, myself, Scrumbly, and someone else, another guy were working together with a group and we got a contract with Warner Brothers to do um, some backup work for other groups they were promoting. We had four-part harmony in that. I was called Paula Pucker in those days. And then John Rothermill was doing uh, one-woman shows. Sylvester had gone on his own with uh, the hot band. Uh, you had a number of people who were, taking their own acts. Mink Stoll, who had been performing with us, was, was doing shows. Um, so people just started splintering apart, you know. Yeah. I guess this had left and was formed, formed the East Coast Angels of Light. So, so that, felt, that, that must have felt like quite a... Did it feel like when he left? Um, it, oh, did it... it was a complete schism. And it was very dramatic because Hibiscus was adamant that we were going to do free shows. And Sebastian, who ran the Palace Theater, 
he had to pay for advertising, he had to pay uh, the pianist, he had to pay for the posters, he, you know, he charged $2 a person to get in. And by the time the money trickled down to the Coquettes, and this is after a four week run, we might have $25 or $35 total each person for mm -hmm. a four week run. So there wasn't a lot of money, but there was this whole schism about um, the Irving Rosenthal commune and uh, stay out of the wheel of commerce. Um, he had written a book previously and had um, bad feelings about uh, commercial endeavors in general, you know. And so at any rate, it ended up uh, uh, breaking up the coquettes. But I think more than the money, it was the fact that Hibiscus saw things getting too he didn't like things getting tightened up and, and he didn't want a director and he didn't want the show to be, he wanted things to be spot, spontaneous. Yes. And um, when he started the Coquette, the angels of light, a lot of us performed in both shows. You know, we went to three thirty Grove and did shows with Hibiscus and we did shows with the Coquettes. Yes. So, and did you feel, and did you feel great loyalty to Hibiscus? Because he obviously is this kind of amazing character. I just wanted. I adored what... him. Beaver once said to me, "He was the sun, and we moved around him like the planets." Yes. And it was really true. Hibiscus was a shaman. He he was so magnetic. He was uh, charismatic. I've never known anyone like him. Yes. Ever. Amazing. Did you ever meet Andy Warhol at all, or was that somebody that? No, just... I knew Jackie Curtis. I'm at Hollywood Lawn and, you know, we became friends. And uh, some of the other Warhol people I did uh, shows with afterwards at, in, when I moved to New York at Bowery Lane Theater, um, Mario Montez. And I had uh, uh, Gerard Malanga, who was Andy's photographer. We were friends. And so... Um, no, I didn't know Andy Warhol though. But no. So then much. what? So you leave you leave the Coquettes and then sort of continue performing. But you have your baby as well. So then what happens for the rest of the seventies? The seventies. Well, we did uh, pristine condition. Paul Puck on Pioneers for a couple of years, and uh, I moved to New York to join John Flowers and Fayette Hauser, who were living in New York, and we moved into a loft on 2nd Street, which is right around the corner from this little bum bar called CBGB's. There you go. Now, it was a bum bar. I mean, it was the Bowery, you know. This is the old days in the Bowery, and there was an unused stage there. And so uh, Fayette and John and I talked Hilly, the manager or the owner, he and his wife ran the place into letting us use that stage. And so... Fayette and John Flowers got together this little act uh, where he was Dottie Dolphin, who was an understudy for Esther Williams. And, you know, anyway, it was a little thing where they go on stage and they had a little, uh, uh, they each did monologues. And then I had um, my act where I came in in this uh, tight sequin dress and I sang this uh, double entendre song that Peter Minton found for me called Man of War. Excellent. And, um, Slowly, the scene started happening, and it drew uh, uh, the Stilettos, who were the group pre-Blondie. Um, she was in the Stilettos. So Debbie uh, uh, started uh, 
hanging out there and a garage band from Queens called the Ramones who called themselves the Ramones started hanging out there. So were you, were you meeting people like Danny Fields and uh, those? Oh God, oh God, yes. Danny Fields was our publicist when the Cockettes were in New York. Right. So yeah, we knew Danny Fields. And in fact, uh, you know, there was a, an angst. I had an angst with Danny Fields until, until uh, in 2005, I was in New York. We all were, they brought us to New York because the Coquette papers, Martin Warman, who was a Coquette, he had passed away and his papers were being accepted into the Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts or, you know, anyways, big, big party. And I saw Danny Fields at the Monkey Bar in, in Brooklyn and I was reading from my book and it was wonderful. I mean, it's wonderful to be friends with people who you knew way, way back then. But see, he and I had kind of a funny thing because Dee Dee and I were an item for a year and a half. And they were trying to keep Dee Dee away from drugs. And, you know, certainly I wasn't the problem. I was a, a hippie girl who was, you know, into show business now. But, you know, Dee Dee had a penchant for um, the hard stuff. Yes. And so I got a little bit of blame from Danny for, you know, for Dee Dee's uh, proclivities. Yes. But, uh, so oh, yeah, you, we knew. So when you met him sort of all those decades later, did it just feel like there was a lot of water under the bridge? Oh, God, yes. It was wonderful. In fact, now Sebastian, who at the time was hated by the Coquettes, you know, because he was the businessman and we were the artists. And now we just had a reunion in January, a 50-year reunion of the Coquettes. We took over the Victoria Theatre in the Mission. And Sebastian was there. He's in his 80s now. And it's just like we're all the best friends. It's just there's so few of us left, you know. Yes, survivors, survivors. Right. So, so how did um, CBGB's um, compare to Max's Kansas City then? Because that well, was another... it was different. We were, I was hanging out at Max's. See, I'm, I went to Max's with David Johansson. And that's how I met Bill Veer and the Theater of the Ridiculous People. And this goes back to 69, because I was in New York for the Easter Bean in 1969. And um, so David took me to the back room at Max's. So I was aware of that as the spot to go in New York. And it still was when we were, when the Cockettes were on tour. Yes. Uh, we met Alejandro Jodorowsky, who uh, was uh, filming, he went on to film El Topo. And he took Bobby and Nikki in the cast. Uh, Rob Rauschenberg, who took the Cockettes home to dinner and gave them $1,000 because we were starving. We were living at cocktail parties. We didn't even have our checks, you know? Because <laughs> most everybody was on welfare at the time. Yes. So, so, how did, um, so, so how were you navigating, you know, through the, the 70s into the 80s? What, was, what did well, you do? Well, there was the punk rock movement. There, there was the whole thing in New York. Well, I stayed in New York for a couple years until I basically fled New York because I felt like I was going to be sucked down in the vortex of, you know, uh, drugs and, you know, all of that stuff. Uh, and I, I went back to, uh, I went to Ann Arbor for a while. I went back to, back home to Michigan. And uh, that was 78, I think. And I stayed uh, during the Jonestown massacre which was, I don't know if you heard about, which uh, yes. and uh, the 
the killing of Mayor Moscone and Harvey Milk, which happened right near then. And I thought, oh my God, I got to go back home before there's no home to go back to. So I came back to San Francisco, you know, because I remember Chrissy calling me and saying, you wouldn't believe what's going on over here. <laughs> well, luckily it's all, it's all calmed down. Life is so much easier. Oh yeah, right. It's all calmed down. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah okay. I know. God, suddenly you just... Suddenly I'm you sorry suddenly... if I'm talking too much. Go ahead. No, 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 it's fine. It's just, it's funny because I think when it was kind of, everything was going nicely, you know, there was a sort of, oh dear, it's all gone a bit too nice. And now everyone's going, oh, you know, it was quite nice when it was nice. It all felt a bit more stable, didn't it? You know, nothing feels very stable at the moment. Which is kind no, of... it doesn't. In fact, yeah, it's it's a very scary time. Now, since, uh, you know, since then, I'm glad to be out of the city because though we have uh, things going on in Santa Rosa, it's a smaller town, very low key. And um, I've gotten back into my writing. So, um, yes. of course, I've gone to Santa Rosa Community Santa Rosa Junior College, but now our classes are on Zoom because we can't meet in person anymore. But it's great because I have two writers critique groups. One's got um, 11 people and the other one has 18. And they all give me written, we meet and um, we have our classes. And then I get uh, written edits of my work, you know, from all these people so it's amazing the feedback I'm getting yes so then what did you do sort of during the 90s and then into the sort of the millennium and onwards oh. <laughs> <laughs> because, well, because, because 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 the interesting thing is because there's not not a lot of people who get into those sort of scenes and especially such extreme uh, scenes survive that well they often they don't survive or right. they well, they end up being kind of quite bitter and edgy but you don't have that quality at all well you know and this will probably surprise you and it says it right on the back of my book um i after this i left new york or after i i was back and forth a number of times but i became an accountant for a number of years Excellent. <laughs> you go that's how i saved a little nesting as my father used to say You've been married more times than Elizabeth Taylor, which is not true. That's not true. <laughs> but he used to say that. I, um, I had a, um, several husbands and, um, you know, I wrote a book. I, I did volunteer work for the Tibetan Aid Project uh, for Hopalong Animal Rescue. I, I, it's not like I haven't had a full life. I haven't missed too much. And then I started um, working with... Uh, the hypnodrome, the thrill peddlers, which were, uh, in fact, if they had been around during the days of the cockettes, they would have been cockettes. They're younger kids. They're a generation or so younger than we are. Yeah. But um, Russell saw my book, and this is a funny tie-in. Uh, he saw, he knew Robert Altman, the photographer, one of the photographers who had taken a picture of me in my book and he saw my book in uh in north beach at city lights and he the cover gary panther did the cover it was all silvery and stuff and and he picked it up and he read the book and he got so excited about it he tracked down robert altman through the credits and found me and invited me to come to the hypnodrome so i met with him and we talked and you know we had, we had a lot of fun and he says, 
you know, I'd love to meet any of the coquettes that are still around and have them join our shows. So I thought, oh, this poor guy, he's got no idea what he's getting into. This is what I'm thinking. <laughs> I mean, they're going to walk all over him, you know, because I know the I know the people, the personalities. And I know a lot of people are gone. Yeah. Most everybody's gone. But the ones that are left are survivors. And, you know, they're going to bowl this guy over. <laughs> and so Scrumbly, who I had a son with, who plays piano, um, came and he loved Russell and he started working with the thrill peddlers. And so uh, I did too. I wouldn't at first, at first I was busy. I, I had something else going, but uh, I retired. I quit my job. I was 62 and um, I had, I actually was lucky enough to make a little money on this, uh, the California, the craze, the, um, that homeowners craze i had bought a house and sold it so i i had a little bit of coin and uh i retired early and i joined uh russell and in scrumbly and scrumbly and i started taking some of the coquettes material and reworking it because back in those days we could sing we never paid rights to anybody what you know are you kidding <laughs> you know yes. so we had to write scrumly had to write all new material and then i was writing working on the book i was writing new dialogue um new characters so we worked together to rewrite a couple of the shows tinsel tars and pearls over shanghai and i i took parts in both both shows and so we did those for months on end. They ran at the Hypnodrome in San Francisco. That was like 2013, 2014. Wow. You know, in there. That's really so. And when, when did you start um, the idea of writing your book? Because that, that came out about 2004, didn't it? Yeah, well, you know why? Because actually, I had just bought a house in 2002. I just bought that house that has allowed me to retire. Um, and... I met David and Bill, who were, they were influenced by the Cockettes. They hadn't even come out. They were in the closet when they had heard about, they'd seen <laughs> Trisha's Wedding. That's was it. They'd seen oh. this crazy movie we did, Trisha's Wedding. And they had lived in these little community, or uh, Bill had lived in this little community. And I don't know, it gave them some hope for their sexuality or their, their life. Anyway, the, Bill and David decided to put together this film. And Bill is a practicing Buddhist. And the man, he could have made us look completely foolish, but he did this with such love. If you ever get a chance to see this film on, on TV or on one of the shows, you know, you've got to see it. He, there's such love in this film. And, and it's Bill, really. It's, it's unbelievable. And David, it, it, it's really a good film. Anyway, um, they were putting together this movie. And I thought, oh, yeah, right. You can film in my backyard. So they came to my house. And I didn't even wear makeup. I thought, I'm not going to, I'm not going to give it I just wouldn't give it any credence, you know? Yeah, yeah. And Fayette said to me, and to this day, I, I rue the fact that I didn't wear it. She says, you're not wearing makeup? She <laughs> says, don't you know film is forever? And she's so right now, I see myself in that film and thought, oh, what was I thinking? I look <laughs> dreadful. I mean, I had gone through this horrible treatment, I had taken interferon because I had uh, caught um, 
Now, I didn't know if I should say this on TV. I had caught um, hepatitis C many decades ago from Didi. And it was uh, genotype B, which was uh, from East Asia. And he had been in Vietnam. So I know it was that's what happened. So anyway, I had gone through this grisly treatment where my hair, you know, kind of fallen out. And, and like, I was very pale. pale and But um, so I didn't look my best for the filming, but I did the film. And then afterwards, Fayette and I were talking, God, wouldn't it be great, you know, to, to do, tell a real story, the backstory. Because David and Bill gathered all this material, but they weren't there. They don't yes. know the inside story. So... I traveled around. I went to New York. I went to LA. Um, Dave, uh, Robert Crinquist was Martin Warman's lover, and he took Martin's tapes. Martin had done uh, uh, tape recordings of Cockettes in the 70s. And when he died, Robert, who was a New York school teacher, transcribed 700 pages of them. Wow. And so he made this all available to me. Plus, my parents gave me a cache of letters I had written them between 1968 and 1972, explaining the shows and, you know, everything. So I had all this material. So um, yes. I just, yeah, I was married and I was living in my new house and I just wrote, you know, I wrote and wrote, wrote. I went to work during the day and I wrote all night. Wow. And did it feel quite, um, A, did it feel therapeutic and D, B, did you discover things that you'd slightly forgotten and went, oh, yes, I remember. It was a catharsis. It really was. It was unbelievable. And as far as discovering things, I discovered so much. But some of it was so fantastic, I wouldn't dare put it in the book. Unless I heard it from two (laughs) separate sources, I wouldn't report it as fact because too many people had, you know, had too many different crazy memories that, may or may not have been embellished you know what i mean yes. so i ha- i checked out everything i could before i put it in the book i know and did, and were there bits about it when you were doing it you, you mentioned cathartic and and um yeah because obviously quite a few people had died including hibiscus so that must so have many. it must have felt quite hard at times having those it was kind so of... hard i felt like i was channeling dead people dead friends I mean, when hibiscus died, we didn't, there was no, we didn't know AIDS. What's, there was no AIDS. We called it gay cancer. We had no idea what it was, you know, yes. and, and he, he was so, the first one. And he was so young. He was so young. Wasn't yeah, he? this was 1982. He passed. And uh, then people just went bing, 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 bing. And it was AIDS and it was drugs. You know, it was, uh, it was a hard scene. It and it hard. happened so fast. So when you sort of still have your occasional reunions, either on Zoom or in real life, um, and hopefully real life again, um, you're still in touch with Fayette. Is there quite a few others of you that are still kind of the survivors of that? Well, there's not quite a few. There's a couple. Scrumbly, Fayette, John Waters is still here. He came to our party. And in fact, um, Third Man Records flew Fayette and John uh, Fayette, Scrumbly and I out to John Waters' 82nd birthday last year in Detroit. So we flew out for that. So that was fun. So, yeah, um, uh, Sebastian, our manager, is still around, oddly enough. And um, Tahara, who was one of the Angels of Light, and um, Beaver was an Angel of Light. So we brought them on stage. We had a, you know, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence were there to give us all little... um, 
little medals Excellent. with our names on them. And uh, they're a charitable organization. They dress in habits and, you know. So when, when sort of, what would you say to a, I mean, because you've lived an amazingly full life and sort of navigated it sort of pretty amazingly. What would you say to an 18-year-old self that was starting out? Or what would you have said to yourself back then that you, you sort of learned over the decades? You thought, you know, you might not have done anything that differently, but there was a bit of advice that you thought, yeah, that would have been worth knowing. Wow. I... I don't, I can't even imagine. I I just would have stopped worrying, you know. <laughs> yes. I mean, I was as open as you can possibly be, but part of me always, you know, what's going to happen? How are we going to? Yeah, I wouldn't have worried. Um, life provides, you know, and the only thing you have is change, and you can't. Uh, you can't stop that. <laughs> You can't ever stop. It's the only thing that's certain. Yes. Um, I don't know what, uh, boy, you caught me. I wish I had known about this question. <laughs> about it. <laughs> I'll come up with an answer later. Can I write it to you? <laughs> yes, do. I was just kind of curious. I mean, because obviously you and Fayette and, and you know, very, you know, the people you mentioned have managed to survive it. And you must feel like, wow, that was quite a life. And there must be bits as well, especially when you were doing your book and you saw the film. You, you know, there must have been those golden moments and those other moments as well that were like, that wasn't quite so golden. But obviously you can't have amazing moments without a few sort of, you know, downers as well. So was there, was there, is there a particular period when you thought, God, everything we did was just brilliant? You know, it was just absolutely, the stars had lined up and it was just perfect. Well, that's the way it was in the Cockettes. And then going to New York, and hitting right at the moment that the punk scene started, that seemed faded. It just yeah. seemed like it was faded, you know. I know, there's that amazing story of the man who sort of um, survived the two nuclear bombs dropping, wasn't it? He'd sort of gone from one of the, the first... Yes, I remember the first, that. <laughs> the first city moved to the next one. Got pulled. And it was a bit like, well, you, you know, not, not quite like that, but you'd gone from one scene into the punk scene, which is so kind of like... The Ramones, you couldn't get more, you know. Well, we were sit, we were show, doing a show at the Palm Casino Review, which was at the Bowery Lane Theater, and so we were. That was Warhol people, Lola Pashalinsky and and uh, James Ferguson. And anyway, we were doing shows with uh, some ex Warhol people at the time the CBGB started. So it seemed like there was nothing. Everything we touched was golden, you yes. know. This is quite. It seemed like it. It does, and it seemed like it would never end. And this is what, this is what I would say is enjoy your life, enjoy every minute, because things do change, and it doesn't last. You know. Yes. I don't want to leave a sour note, but you know, really, we just thought it would never end. And in many ways, but but you're like you know the way you've you know you've documented it, and Fayette's got you know, her book, and now the, there was the film over 10 years ago. It has, do you feel that there's still more people discovering the coquettes now than there were like 10 or 20 years ago? We've gotten more than our 15 minutes of fame. This thing keeps giving and giving and giving. It, it just, I've never seen anything with legs like this. This has got so much mileage. And we just, I just did, in fact, I've done three interviews this week. Some, a woman from... <laughs> 
and she's from London too, from it's not St. Christian, St. Michael's. I can't even remember. Uh, this guy from Brazil, I've done a, a, an interview for uh, a book he's writing on divine. You know, these, it's just, I don't know, maybe there's a lull in, I don't know why, but suddenly, um, you know, we seem to be relevant. Well, it's interesting because your um, well, your book now on the marketplace on Amazon is known hit sixty times, hit sixty pounds, and that's the cheapest. So obviously, no, people... no, there's go to the used section. There's used sections in on Amazon, and you can get them for a couple dollars. You know, I want I, you to read it. <laughs> I, I do, I do want to watch it, but but I'm sure that I had it in the basket, and that's kind of that copy went, and now it's like, oh no. Shit. I think everyone's like, gone bought and bought your book. Um, see, if you were if you were here, you could get it at the library. Is at the library? That's yeah. one good thing that happened. Is I got a great review in Library Journal, and they put me in all the the top notch colleges across as counterculture history. Yeah. Because I did a lot of research. I set it in its historical context. I know. Well, it's it's interesting because you've got you know the the first story, which is you know like the Monterey Pop Festival and Woodstock and the hippie thing, and then a bit of the Warhol world. But then there's this bit that's also come in and is now sort of becoming part of that narrative of the '60s counterculture, isn't it? You know, because in the early days it was just kind of Woodstock. Then it was like, oh, Monterey. Oh, there's Andy Warhol. Don't talk about him. They all dressed in black. And then it's like, oh, the coquettes and this. Oh, right. We'll put that in there as well. So it is interesting that it's. I think it's kind of getting a lot more. You know, yeah, kind of a lot more recognition, really. Because I think everyone realizes at Woodstock, if it wasn't for such a great film, it was a pretty awful event, wasn't it? <laughs> well. If Marshall were still alive and he had he had one of those booths there, you know, um, he could tell you stories. Of course, he, uh, Marshall was absolutely incredible. So many people are gone and this. I wish they were here. I'm not the best one to tell this tale. I wasn't a star of the Cockettes, you know, but I just happened to live. You know, <laughs> and that's 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 the that's the key, isn't it? But look, Pam, thank you, thank you ever so much for giving me your time. And uh, David, so please, it's been fantastic. Yes, out on the world that is Zoom. So look, I'm going to have to try and end this meeting without yeah. it all feeling rude. But look, take care. You too, and, and good uh, luck to you. Yeah, and let's survive this year. You've survived. Yeah, you. and survive. enjoy. Right, let's survive this year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, we're halfway through it. It's fine. We're doing well. Anyway, look, take care. Okay. And I, I got to work on my novel. <laughs> yeah, you better do that. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I know. How to say goodbye. Convincingly. Anyway, that's the end of the interview. And that was me in conversation with Pam Tent, one-time member of the Coquettes. And as she said, her book is available, Midnight at the Palace, My Life as a Fabulous Coquette. This has been David East of the C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. And uh, all these interviews have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. And um, yeah, that's it, basically. And also I've done an interview with the fabulous um, Fayetta, and also with Scrumley as well, but that hasn't come out yet. But, um, you know, it's all good stuff. Anyway, have a great week. Bye.